Today on the podcast, a mantelpiece moment that talks to you about The Bathers of Rome, a novel that is always on the move, and of course, the weekly reveal to what magical book I have pulled down from my to-be-read shelf. All of that and more this week on A Novel Review. Hello and welcome to the literature podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus. I am your host. And for today's episode, The House That Doesn't Stop. Yes, it's Howl's Moving Castle. But before I get into this book, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, something to highlight from the week past. And this past week, I was in Rome visiting uh Any long listeners of the pod might recall that I do have a master's in Roman history. And so I love to visit Rome, the the, the melting pot of the empire. Safe to say it was absolutely heaving. It was so busy, which I found quite odd because it's winter. And I mean, all I've ever heard from people is that winter is this gloomy, bleak, cold, wet, gray, dreary affair and that everyone just goes into hibernation, and clearly that's not the case. Everyone was in Rome, uh, which I low-key hated because there were so many people, but as I am one of the pesky tourists that I was complaining about, I can't really hate them, and sort of grew to love them because, yeah, like I said, everyone always says it's a it's a hibernation period, but that is just not the case. Everyone is out, everyone was traveling, everyone was in good spirits, um, but it also made things quite difficult to book, the Colosseum, the Roman Forum, they were all booked out for weeks in advance, which I had not anticipated, it being winter. Um, so I had to sort of turn to some backups and go to some lesser known places, which I'm going to talk to you about today. This isn't me saying, oh, the, the Seamus' top five tips for if you're a local Roman or anything like that, those where they try to sell you like on Cafe Live or anything like that. No, no, no. I'm just going to talk to you about an archaeological site that is a bit less travelled, and it is the Baths of Caracalla. Now, I think it costs five euros to get in from memory, and it's this expansive bath sort of, say a bath house, uh, similar to the Baths of Bath that I spoke about earlier on a different podcast, but this one is much bigger, much, much bigger on a different kind of scale. Uh, From memory, it was 9,000 workers spent six years building them, and at any given time, on any given day, it could house 6,000 bathers. It had pools, baths, saunas, uh, what else was there? Ooh, libraries, a, a gym, meeting rooms. So it really was sort of this melting pot of everyday Roman life. And what I love about them is they are actually completely in ruin. And so you walk through these huge, huge structures that are just completely ruinous. And it's kind of like looking at this dissection of their architectural standards, but also their building standards. Their, their, their daily life standards. And it's just kind of this different experience. I mean, I know you've got the Colosseum and the Forum right there. It is about a 10-minute walk from there. But I don't know. There's something really rich about walking through just complete ruins and seeing what they were and imagining the grandeur of them, I guess. That's sort of the fun part of them. 
but it's this really fun site. It's it's quite big. You can do it in probably a couple of hours. Um, like I said, quite cheap. It's it's all open air, so don't go on a rainy day. But it's you know it's 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 very less traveled. Pretty much no one was there, which is incredible because it's such a beautiful site, um, and I love it because it just sort of sort of highlights the one the architectural standards that the Roman Empire had, but also sort of the cleanliness standards. Uh, you know, they understood that you needed to bath, that you needed to work out the body, have gyms, pools, uh, saunas, you know, all these things, but also libraries and meeting rooms. It just kind of really culminates on how they understood and valued human life, which ironic because they didn't were not exactly known for treating slaves greatly. And, you know, I mean, down the road you had the Colosseum, which was a, a fighting chamber for killing slaves. But I digress. Baths of Caracalla, great place to visit if you are ever in the area and a lot less touristy. Housekeeping, as always, all the scripts from the episodes are available on my website and there should be closed captions just around here. Of course, please like, subscribe, five-star review. It really helps other people find the pods and I really appreciate it too. Thank you. Now, let's get into this book before it runs away from us. I am sure many of us know the title thanks to the film by Studio Ghibli. In fact, many of you might not have even known it was a book, myself included up until recently, maybe even right now, today. What's even funnier, I think, is it's written by an Englishwoman, Diana Wynne-Jones, and there are parts of this book that are actually set in Wales, which, I mean, is fantastic because Studio Ghibli, of course, brings their own Studio Ghibli vibe to the film. It brings this own sort of magic and, and experience to it, which I absolutely love. This completely different feel, but still remaining quite faithful to the text itself. Now, I watched this film so many times growing up. Another film by Studio Ghibli, Spirited Away, is one of those films that really defines sort of my own childhood and my siblings' childhood because it was—it just seemed to always be on in the background. And so we fell in love with that. And naturally, when Howl's Moving Castle came out, we were, we were all over it. I watched it so many times. And then, I mean, I just completely forgot about it. Just it got completely lost to the annals of my own past, which... Might be quite sad to think about how something so pivotal can just like fade into the background, but that's life. Things change. We move on. But then, of course, I was listening to a podcast and they mentioned this book and they said it's actually a really decent read. And I was like, oh, damn, I remember that quite well. So naturally, I had to start reading it. Now, I said I could remember it. I couldn't actually remember it that well in terms of storyline. I could just sort of remember the feeling of a few details, you know, the moving castle itself, the fact that there's four doors in this castle that lead to four different places. I remember sort of the magic of it, the depth of it, the scope of it. Maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Maybe I need to do an overview first just so we're all sort of relatively on the same page. This is a fantasy novel. It is set in a land called Ingery. Sophie is one of the main characters and she is working as a hat maker when she accidentally attracts the attention of the Witch of the Waste who puts a curse on her turning her into an old woman. Now, there's sort of one issue. When you are cursed, you can't talk about the curse itself. And so to everyone else, it just appears that Sophie's gone missing and this young the young woman, this old woman has now appeared. Sophie decides that she needs to do something about this and she decides to venture to the moving castle, which is inhabited by the wizard Hal. One of the issues is, but not such an issue now, is that Hal is known for being 
uh, a wizard that consumes young girls' hearts. As Sophie is now not a young girl, she feels relatively safe approaching this castle, and when she gets in, she meets the fire demon Calcifer. Now, Calcifer, being a fire demon, can actually detect that there is a curse on Sophie, and he agrees to break the curse on one condition. If Sophie is able to break the contract he has with the wizard Hal. And so the story unfolds. So there we have it. Hal's moving castle. I want to say that this is considered children's literature. Maybe we can push it to young adult, but either way, it's still a very good read. It does read quite easily, which makes it quite a pleasant read. It's quite a fun story to read. It's not childish in the sense that it's ridiculous or anything like that. It is a fantasy novel, of course, so there is that element of ridiculousness to it, but it's not ridiculous. The language is still really nice, the structure is good and well-founded, and the world is believable. But despite being a fantasy novel, it feels quite human. And what I mean by human is the characters. They are probably the best thing about this novel. Sophie comes to live in this moving castle as the cleaning maid, along with Hal, his young assistant Michael, and of course the fiery flame Calcifer. Hal is the wizard who is described as sort of good-looking young man, early 20s, but we know he's a really bad person, of course, feasting upon the hearts of young women. There are moments when he is mean, terrible, he's wicked, he's rude, he's indulgent, he's apathetic, but then there are moments where he's kind, he's loving, he's sympathetic. Despite being a wizard, he does feel incredibly real and therefore relatable. Sophie, on the other hand, considers herself quite luckless, she has this idea that because she's the eldest of three girls that she will never never amount to anything. And, I mean, she does get cursed and turned into an old woman, so she's not wrong on that front. But there are moments where you feel she's really going to pack it in and just sort of give up, which, I mean, you understand it because she's been turned into an old woman, but she doesn't. And she understands that if she wants to change something in her life, she has to be responsible for that change. And so throughout the novel, she develops her strength through her own actions and her voice. And eventually she grows to become a person that's quite resilient, despite the fact that she has been turned into an old woman. She's been dealt a pretty crab hand of being turned from this, you know, young, beautiful girl to this old woman full of aches and pains and everything else that accompanies an old person. Another aspect of the novel that really engages you as the reader is this simple mystery that is threaded throughout it. We learn through The Witch of the Waste and then later reaffirmed by Calcifer that you can't talk about your own personal curse. Now, Calcifer being a fire demon does have a magical strength that he can detect Sophie's curse and says that if she can figure out his contract with Hal and break it, that he will break her curse. But Contracts, of course, are like curses, and so you can't talk about them. So Casper tells Sophie that she simply just has to listen, and she will be hopefully able to piece together the curse, the, the contracts rather, and break it. And so what we now have is the mystery of Calcifer's contract that is slowly being threaded throughout the story. And every conversation you are reading with an extra level of attention trying to play detective and piece together little clues if you can detect them at all. It's this wonderful idea because it forces you to be a more attentive reader. There is even a chapter where Calcifer lets slip that a clue will be coming, and at the end of the chapter he asks Sophie, you know, did you catch it? And she replies, no, I didn't. And I, I got to admit, I didn't catch it either, which is, you know, a sad thing to admit because you're reading it, 
like you're heading to the conclusion of the story knowing that everything's going to be resolved of course but you want to get there before everyone else you want to have that Sherlockian sense that was able to pull apart and piece together things that have been spoken about but alas I am not Sherlock Holmes the structure of the story itself is also a fun story to indulge in yes there is this overarching storyline in that we ultimately as the reader want to see Sophie return to her original state but despite this magical adventure where in this moving house of hell there are four doors that lead to four different places the majority of the story actually takes place within the house itself in the kind of living room space there is this entire fantasy world shifting by outside in all these wonderful places and yet we always find ourselves wrapped up in the front room, finding comfort in the dynamics between all the characters. After reading the book, naturally, I had to go back and rewatch the film, and man, I, like I loved it. It was just, it just took me back to my youth and my childhood, and it was fun. It's different, I will say that. It's rich in its own way, and it does bring this fresh new vision to the novel. It brings a wonderful vision to the novel, I should say. You know, some things are changed, as is the case with adaptations, but. That's not to say it's changed for the bad, for the worse. It's just different. They, you know, definitely still respect the text, and I love that. But it was, I mean, Studio Ghibli was just the perfect choice to adapt a book like this. It was a novel that had a lot of loose, dangling threads for majority of the story, and it comes to this really nice sort of neat tight end. It's a fun read. It's a valuable read. Just because it's a children's book does not mean that I felt it was wasted. I am now going to rate this novel a 3.9 out of 5. So what am I reading this week? This week I'm reading a book, well I'm actually listening to it, by G.K. Chesterton called The Man Who Was Thursday. An interesting title, I will admit that, and it makes a lot more sense once you have started reading, but basically it's about a man who is a poet but by trade is a police officer infiltrating a council of anarchists who each go by the name of a different day of the week and he becomes Thursday, hence the name of the book. I had no idea what to expect when I started this book, but it opens with some really fun discourse about the nature of poetry and how the timetable for the London Underground is actually the most poetic thing in the world. And it's these kind of absurd ideas that are making this book really fun and fresh and also a little insane. It's quite short, I think it was a four hour listen. I have about 30 minutes to go at this stage and it's safe to say there are a few comic twists, a few facepalm moments, but also, and this is the really fun part, I have no idea where this story is going. I have no idea what's going to happen. I have no idea how this book is going to wrap itself together. It's absurd and it's really fun and stay tuned for an episode. Now, before I close out the show, if you have listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I would really appreciate it. And of course, please head along to the website and support the pod. But as always, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. So I think it's time to end this episode. And today to take us away, I think some Emily Bronte and the second stanza from her poem, The Old Stoic. And it goes, And if I pray, the only prayer that moves my lips for me is, Leave the heart that now I bear and give me liberty. Liberty.